2 Kings 13, verses 14 to 21 is our text. 2 Kings chapter 13, 14 to 21, we'll begin reading at verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, the son of Judah, uh, the king of Judah, rather, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did in his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, open the window toward the east, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck it five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they, were, as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. The reading of God's holy word be seated as we seek his face for his blessing on the preaching and the hearing. Of his word. Our Father, we pray that as we look at this text together, you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might understand your will for us, that we might see what you have revealed, O Spirit of God, for the church of Jesus Christ of all ages. We, take, we pray, O Lord, that we would take these things to heart, that we might apply them, we might do your holy will. 
we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 informs us that the faith and life of a believer can have far-reaching implications even beyond the grave for the faith and life of succeeding generations of God's people. That verse reads, By faith Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Our text chronicles the end of an era, the end of Elisha's life and ministry. For about four decades, Jehovah's word through this prophet had been a mainstay for Israel's life and faith. Whether that word came in the form of a promise, a rebuke, or judgment. This passage tells us Elisha spoke not only on his deathbed, but like Abel, though dead, spoke from the grave, and therefore continues to speak today through the spirit-inspired narrative of his life and ministry. We have in our text this evening, in the first place, a promise that calls for self-examination, and secondly, a miracle that instills hope. A promise that calls for self-examination, a miracle that instills hope. The first place in verses 14 to 19, a promise that calls for self-examination. No, no details are, are given to us here of, uh, about of Elijah's, uh, Elisha's illness, uh, except that it was an illness uh, that was going to take his life. He was about to die. Nor do we know the location, though we know from chapter 5 that Elisha had a home in Samaria, the, the royal city. Just as his father Jehoahaz had sought Jehovah's favor in a time of a great crisis, uh, as we saw last Lord's Day, chapter 13, verse 4, so King Jehoash comes to Elisha seeking a word from the Lord, verse 14. He realizes that Elisha is soon going to be gone, and he weeps over him, echoing the words, the exact words, that Elisha himself spoke when Elijah was taken to heaven. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, words that reflect the grim situation in the life of Israel at uh, uh, the northern kingdom uh, at this time. Israel's defenses were down to 50 horsemen and 10 chariots, verse 10 tells us. Was he being sincere? Or was he simply being deferential to the old prophet? who'd been so influential in the northern kingdom? 
We don't know, but the word suggests that Elisha's death will leave Israel defenseless, that the presence of the prophet had been a shield to Israel. There's a a prominent example. We don't take time to turn to that now, but uh, a prominent example in chapter 6, verses 8 to 23 here in 2 Kings. So Elisha seeks to encourage the king. So it's not a particularly faithful king, but I suppose by this time Elisha was accustomed to working with faithless kings of Israel, and he seeks to instill faith in the king, seeks to encourage the king. He directs him to take bow and arrows, verse 15. Note how it's the dying prophet who is in charge throughout this episode. He, he gives orders. The king obeys. It tells us something about uh, the relationship between a prophet and uh, the kings of, of Israel. And what follows is an acted-out prophecy. Elisha directs Joash to draw the bow. Uh, the prophet places his hand on the king's hand, and they shoot together an arrow out of the east window, verses 16 and 17. Elisha interprets the action in the second part of verse 17. The Lord's arrow of victory, even the, the, the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And now that Jehoash knows what the arrow means, Elisha seeks to know how much it means to him. Will uh, the king appropriate Jehovah's word enthusiastically? Will he take hold of uh, the word that, that God has spoken through the prophet? So the prophet orders him to take arrows and strike the ground, apparently shooting through the window into the ground. Verse 18, Uh, if the arrow shot out of the window symbolizes a promise of victory, the arrows shot repeatedly into the ground represent petitions, symbolically, in this acted out prophecy. Jehoash shoots and strikes the ground three times and stops. And Elisha is furious. He should have shot five or six times. Elisha gave Jehoash a blank check, so to speak, against Jehovah's unlimited promise account. And the king, concerned that he'd overdraw it, put a self-imposed limit on his petition. That's like someone who's been given a check for a million dollars going to of their bank and asking to cash it for only 500000 Only the implications are far more significant here in uh, the account of Elijah. Elisha. And so Elisha proceeds to, to qualify uh, the promise because of the lukewarm response that the king had given to that promise. Had you struck it five or six times, then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike it only three times. And as we saw last week, uh, that's exactly what happened. 
in verse 25. Uh, Joash, that is Jehoash, also called Joash, defe- uh, Joash defeated him uh, and recovered the cities uh, three times. Jo- Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. And the last time, uh, last Lord's Day, we, we took uh, verses 1 through 13 with 22 to 25 because in 1 through 13, both Jehoaz and his son Jehoash's reigns are described and summarized uh, in 1 through 13. And then in 22 through 25, uh, both of their reigns are in some sense further expanded upon, further expounded upon. But it's also important to see how uh, verses 10 through 13, verses 14 to 19, and uh, 24 to 25, especially 25, fit together. Verses 10 to 13 summarize... Jehoash's entire reign, mentioning the might with which he fought against Amaziah, uh, the king of Judah. That's next up here in 2 Kings in uh, chapter 14. Uh, But verses 10 to 19, uh, uh, rather verse 25, uh, in verse 25, uh, Jehoash acts as uh, a deliverer for Israel. That's what uh, God had promised his father, Jehoahaz, that he would give, uh, because he sought uh, the favor of the Lord, that he would give him a deliverer, a, a savior. And, and that came in, in the form of uh, Jehoash and also in the form of uh, Jeroboam II later on here in Second Kings. But verses 14 to 19 take up more space than either of these two uh, bracketed accounts take up in the narrative. They capture the king's most crucial moment, standing before Jehovah's word. The text makes a value judgment. The inspired narrator of 2 Kings, by uh, the Spirit's, uh, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, makes a value judgment here. And that is that the way a person responds to Jehovah's Word is more significant than all of the achievements and all of the honors of a lifetime. We have in just a few verses here this compact summary in verses 10 to 13 of the life of Jehoahaz. But we have an account here in verses 14 20 through 21 that show us how he appropriated the word of God. And what this text says to us is that when, uh, that after all that is said and done, whatever you've managed to accomplish through the course of 
your lifetime and your education, your marriage, your family, your professional life, etc., pales in comparison to your response, to your obedience to the Word of God. A promise uh, that calls for self-examination. We'll say more in terms of of, uh, uh, Jehoash's response to uh, God's Word uh, in the conclusion tonight, but but surely this calls us to self-examination. It calls us to uh, examine our lives. It calls us to examine our priorities. What's important to me? Are my accomplishments more important to me than the Word of God? Are my successes in life, do I cling to my past successes? Uh, Do I look to those uh, for my encouragement? And and as a a measure of, of success, or do I look to the Word of God? Secondly, in verses 20 to 21, we see a miracle that instills hope. Elisha is dead and buried. Bands of Moabites are are carrying out their customary spring invasion of the land. And it would be easy to think of Elisha's ministry as a failure. After all, the northern kingdom remained godless while Baalism had been uh, and while Baalism had been eradicated out of Israel, chapter 10, verse 28, that was the, uh, the work, uh, that's, that was Jehu's calling. Jeroboam's calf-worshipping cult continued unchecked in the land, and uh, both Jehoash and his father Jehoahash uh, followed, continued to follow that that. Uh, that cult in the, in the land of the northern kingdom. We've seen how Jehovah authenticated Elijah's ministry in a spectacular way when he took him up uh, into heaven in a whirlwind with chariots of fire, chapter 2 and verse 11. And now in chapter 13, verses 20 to 21, this Curious episode shows the Lord authenticating Elisha's ministry. A group of Israelites are burying a man, and they're surprised by the Moabite raiders. And that being the case, they chuck his body into Elisha's tomb, and when the man's body comes into contact with Elisha's bones, he comes to life, and he stands up, a spectacular scene, no doubt. Some have seen this as superstitious magic and have Uh, dismissed it as a bizarre relic from an age too ready to believe such things. Others see it as strictly symbolic, 
uh, a symbolic narrative of God throwing Israel into exile and then bringing them back to life, restoring them to uh, the land. What do we think about this account? What's this account teaching us? The point that needs to be making uh, that needs making here is is that while there is symbolism in this part of the narrative, as in the previous section uh, of the narrative where the arrows are being shot and interpreted, an account can be factually true as well as symbolic. That's that's characteristic of biblical narrative. Events are true in themselves. These events happen to people who actually lived, but they also give insight into a deeper reality of God's overall purpose in the lives of others. Given the theme of salvation in this chapter, we can readily see how Elisha's ministry, so effective during his lifetime in bringing life out of death, is now authenticated by this miracle, even though he's dead, by the same power that operated during his earthly ministry. Beyond that, it points to the day when death itself will be destroyed. Uh, It should be kept in mind that the Old Testament has no corner on strange episodes like this one. The closest New Testament parallel is Matthew 27, verses 51 to 53, which the gospel writer places in his narrative of gospel accounts right after the death of Jesus. In verse 50, verses 52 to 53 read, The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. That passage, like our text, seems strange to us. Not to mention that it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But it's clear what Matthew intends. He wants us to understand that Jesus in his death had conquered death. That Jesus' death gives us life. Jesus died and the tombs were open. That's the hope of the resurrection. Likewise, you can see that this count of a resurrection in 2 Kings 13 would give great encouragement to the believing remnant of Israel in that day. If we connect verses 21 and 22, uh, rather 20, 20 and 21 with verses 14 to 19, the message is that though Elisha, the servant of the word that through Elisha, Israel 
uh, receives both deliverance, verses 14 to 19, and life, verses 20 to 21, both victory and vitality. Even when the prophet is about to die, or already dead, these gifts are still available to Israel. And uh, the text speaks into uh, this contemporary generation of the church saying to us that these gifts are still available to us. By restoring this dead man through contact with the bones of the dead prophet, God was showing that the divine power that had been so active during the life and ministry of Elisha had not, by his death, disappeared from Israel. And it hasn't disappeared in our day either. Like Abel, Elisha, though dead, speaks to our generation. Believers today uh, know something about King Jehoash's response to the word of God. They know something of Jehoash's half-heartedness. God gives us promises. And one of the promises that God gives to us is that sin shall not have dominion over you. Romans 6, verse 14. Our union with Christ has brought about a regime change. And now we're under the power of grace, which gives us substantial liberty from sin. But Christians have a tendency to respond to God's promises, like Joash, uh, Jehoash responded to God's promises. Having become convinced of total depravity, that is, that sin affects every aspect of our being, our emotions, our will, our volition, we can fall into the trap of believing that that's our condition. That we're so bound by certain habits and behaviors that even though we claim to be Christ's, there's no hope of change or transformation. Perhaps you felt like that at times in your life when you're wrestling with some besetting sin that seems to keep cropping up again and again. You thought you put it to death. You thought that by the Spirit's help you put that sin to death. But then it rears its ugly head again. Yes, we have the promise. But we can't expect too much from it. Because that's the way we are in our sinful nature. But because of this vital union with Jesus Christ, 
through the powerful ministry of his word and spirit, God today still grants deliverance and life, victory and vitality to Christians. And therefore, like Israel of old, we have hope today. How then do we respond to the promises of God? You take your arrows and you shoot them into the ground. Not three times and stopping, but five or six times. That is many times. You take your arrows, you take your petitions, and you shoot them into the ground over and over and over again. And you come before God's throne of grace and you plead with him for his mercy. You plead with God that that having raised you up with Christ in his resurrection power, that he would deliver you from sin's power. This passage calls you to take hold of God's promises and exercise your faith by bringing large petitions to him, believing with the prophet Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, behold, You've made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Let's pray. Our Father, as we examine ourselves, as this text calls us to do, as we look Within our own hearts, we find these half-hearted responses to your promises. That's not what we want, O Lord. It's not the way we uh, would wish to respond to your word. And we know that's not the way you want us to respond to your word. Uh, Nevertheless, O Lord, we do not latch on to your promises by faith as we ought to do. We don't take hold of those promises. We don't exercise our faith uh, as we ought. And uh, we say with the, the epileptic boy's father, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Shore up our faith. Strengthen our faith in your promises and help us, O Lord, to be faithful to pray to bring our petitions before you again and again and again, to give you no rest until you answer. We ask, O God, that you would give us the victory that you promised through our union with Christ. This is a great promise. It's a wondrous reality for Christians. That we're no longer under law, but grace. That sin no longer has dominion over us. That we have a new master. That you've broken, uh, that you've created a breach between us and sin by the power of Christ's resurrection life. And so we pray, our God, that we might, through your Spirit's help, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be enabled to bring large petitions to you 
to approach your throne and to ask great things from you, for you indeed are a great God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.